0: This is The Future of Finance by Motive Labs.
1: Hello, welcome to The Future of Finance, the Motive Labs podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. I'm joined today by Bob Brown, Managing Director and Global Head of the Private Funds Group at Houlihan Loki. Welcome, Bob. Thanks, Sam. We're going to do a little bit of demystification today on what it is to capital raise, what it requires, some of the changing relationships in the landscape in the industry. But let's talk about your career to begin with. And just through a quick whiz through on LinkedIn – It's been varied from Merrill Lynch to Carlisle to Advent, then forming your own business, Beartooth, which was your own entrepreneurial journey. And last year, I think it was last year, was it last year?
2: It was, yes.
1: Last year was acquired by Hula Loki. Congratulations on that. Thanks very much. Could you tell us a little bit about your career and how it's evolved today?
2: Yeah, sure. It's actually been quite a natural journey, honestly, going from knowing absolutely nothing about the industry, wanting to get into finance moving from a small ranch town in Texas to the Northeast, New York City, and then doing everything I could to get a job and a role in the famous associate training programs that existed on Wall Street. I joined Merrill Lynch. I sought out being in the alternatives area, which back then meant very different things. This was 1994, and ultimately went from knowing nothing about the business to covering a group of investors in a very robust market, which was the Northeast. I then went from being in that role as an agent to being hired by David Rubenstein in 1999. I was probably one of the first individuals to go from being an agent to an in-house role in a private equity firm. And in that capacity, I co-headed the North American Capital Raising and Business Development Function, reporting to David for 11 years, which was uh, really, really formative for me. In uh, 2010, I was recruited by Advent to join them to run globally that same function where i uh, went from kind of uh, being a a bit of a mercenary covering investors to actually managing running a team setting agendas things like that and then uh, finally in 2014 left to uh, as you mentioned Form my own business and uh, take on a more entrepreneurial path. Wow, there's a lot to cover there. So I'll, yeah. I'll take, it, take it piece yeah. by piece. You started
1: in New York. You're now based in London, which I'll touch on shortly. The the patriotic person in me is gonna gonna come out. You made a wise choice. I
2: agree, I agree.
1: David Rubenstein, uh, a mentor of yours, who's also been a very good friend to our firm, thanks to you, and then to Advent, arguably the leading financial technology private equity firm at the moment, which obviously parallels enormously into how you've helped create value for us. Many of our listeners sit on both sides of the spectrum. There are investors. There are people looking for investment. There are many general partners that listen to our our podcast as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Beartooth and now Hulahan Loki
2: creates value for its partners? Sure. So look, the the world is not in need of another placement agent, I would say. There are plenty out there. And so when we set out to uh, form the business... Obviously, I faced leaving, as you said, a leading private equity firm as a partner, so it was not a decision I took lightly. I recognized, however, that although there were a broad array of placement agents, there were very few that provided general partners with a truly strategic alternative. So as with anything, a secret sauce is made up of many ingredients. You leave one out, the sauce isn't the same. You add too much of it, it's not quite the same either. And so what we set out to really do is create a bit of a secret sauce through the combination of three very simple, but in their combination, very unique elements. First, we wanted to combine the experience and capability of any of the major brands that are out there. And so we bring really a pretty good experience set. So we tick the experience box as would any other major brand. Second, however, one thing that the marketplace doesn't have a lot of are placement agents for hire that have had significant in-house operating experience. Uh, And in my case, that's been 16 years of my going on 26 year career. And so, from that perspective, that brings a very different element. And in particular, the element it brings is the ability to assist general partners in understanding the marketplace for management companies, how to set up firms how those firms are best operated, not just from an investment perspective, but more so from the interface with the customer, the LP, the investor itself. And then finally, that's allowed us to develop very, very different relationships with those end investors because we've been living with them instead of just trading with them as a typical agent was. And then I would say finally, the third piece is given the number of years that I've spent in-house and given my interest in the industry, I started investing in it in 1996 that was my first fund investment and so we wanted to bring to this a really principle-minded approach and so we're investors in what we do and you know I would say that is uh, less universally the case especially with placement agents out of investment banks where they don't want necessarily that investment to happen for conflict reasons and so uh, I would say it's the combination of really those three things that we wanted to bring together so far so good we've been uh, you know proving out that those three elements create the efficacy of our product which is really the ability to provide efficiency and effectiveness Mm -hmm. allowing our clients to get to their targets or above and in a shorter time than the market will allow thanks We've
1: raised one fund, and most of our team look like, have you ever seen Indiana Jones where the guy drank from the wrong cup? Of course. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an aging process, and you look remarkably young for a man that has raised 189 funds. That's incredible. For Good thing that this is not live visually. <laughs> People might disagree with you. The secret sauce aspect I really like as well. Three ingredients. You've got the breadth of experience, you've got the in-house experience, and you're also investors. You put your money where your mouth is. And that ties in very nicely to the sort of, Of general partner, we are. We brought together three different types of skill set as our own secret source operators, investors, and innovators. Things run well together in threes. They do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a McKinsey strategy do things in threes. But selecting the general partners has got to be a critical part of what you do. I think raising 189 funds successfully isn't just a case of going out there and pushing a product. You have to pick the partners, the GPs that you think are going to succeed. How do you do that?
2: Because you're an investor of your time as well as your money. It's got to be a tough process. Correct. Look, raising a private equity fund, one would say, is easier than it's ever been. At the same time, it's a very crowded marketplace and it's a challenging endeavor. Those that go from the public capital markets and are accustomed to doing a a bond issuance or an IPO show up and start to raise a private equity fund and say, wait a minute, this is taking us 18 months, two years, this is supposed to take a few months. The reality is the average new firm on the market takes 19 months to raise their fund. And so the point that you make, it is a massive opportunity cost, especially if you're in the business of earning success fees as it relates to those closes. And so one of the checks and balances that we wanted to keep in place, and it comes back to the third point that I made If we are eager to invest in something, then why should we not also want to raise it? If we're not eager to invest, why should we want to raise it at the end of the day? And so that's really the litmus test for us. If we are going to be interested in investing, then we should be interested in raising it. And we call that really the principle-minded approach and due diligence check. I'm just scribbling some of this stuff down. Awesome sound bites. Have you
0: heard of Brain Food? It's our weekly newsletter, and it comes out every Sunday morning. It's packed with the best content that we come across on financial services and technology. It contains quotes, articles, events, and it showcases rising fintechs and people in our industry that inspire us. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com.
1: The alternative investment sector has undergone a a huge amount of change recently. I did a a Harvard Private Equity VC course, and one of the outstanding lessons that I learned from it really was the evolution of the GP-LP relationship. There's much more focus these days on value creation. The 220 model is being questioned more and more. A lot of the large LPs have fund-to-fund businesses only to create partnerships for the direct sides of the business. What are some of the shifts that you've seen since you began doing this in the 90s? This is...
2: subject we could go on about for a long time. So I'll try to be brief, although probably not as brief as you'd like me to be. You know, if you attend conferences on the industry, maybe even in the program that you attended, you, you may have heard this, there are many topics being discussed, which all sound interesting as evolutionary. And in some cases, it may be viewed as revolutionary. But the reality is the industry is simply maturing. It's demystified. And you can break it down into all of the various facets of any industry that's maturing. And we love to think that private equity is quite unique, but at the end of the day, it's an industry like all others. It has a product, it has a customer, and the intersection of that is the business itself. So from that perspective, you can look at some examples. Number one, the product has become more commoditized for sure today. And differentiating that product becomes a greater challenge. In addition to that, the customer has become much more sophisticated. You mentioned investors trying to get investment in funds to get to directs or co-investments. Uh, that's an example of that. At the same time, competition has gone through the roof. Today there are probably more than 3,000 private equity funds raising. There are twice as many private equity firms in existence today as there were at the end of the global financial crisis. Two to 300 new firms formed every year. So from that perspective, there's no lack of competition. And finally, you see that margins start to erode. Investors want to challenge the 2 and 20 model. Co-investment is really a gray market way to reduce fees. And ultimately, uh, all of these are very, very natural bits of evidence of any industry going through a stage of maturing. And so those all have uh, great implications for private equity firms. And I think they're undeniable. The question is, which firms will actually see that they're undeniable and do something about it? If And I ask this question a lot of general partners. If you were to be an investor in a company and the CEO did not actually recognize that their industry was maturing and they were not taking the right steps to address it, you would fire them. Mm -hmm. Why can a private equity founder, general partner not recognize that themselves and shouldn't they actually take the actions and the steps towards it? I do think that the market has clearly come around to this and universally that isn't always the case, but quite clearly the first step in that is actually understanding what the product is, what business it is that you're in and who the customer is. And uh, I think it's become more clear to private equity firms and general partners that their product is simple, it's returns, the industry they participate in is the asset management industry, and their customer is the investor, the LP. Once you get those things set in place, And you realize what the playing field is, it becomes much easier to be able to compete.
1: Some of the, I guess, outputs of this changing landscape, and that was really nicely put, by the way, I've kind of got that crystallized in my mind for panels and stuff. One of the outputs has been drastic differentiation of models. Pick your product, know your customer, and then what's your secret source? Or as one of our LPs put it, what's your edge? What are some of the interesting GPs you've seen out there who've taken a different approach to value creation or a differentiation of their model? And you are allowed to say us.
2: Yeah, well, of course, I think uh, I may not be, have been invited had I not been willing to say you. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, we're pretty aligned. So, look, as much as we want to talk about change, you know, the private equity market is not one that's known for dramatic uniqueness. And you know, there are groups that come forward with what they'll say are very unique strategies, very unique approaches. And there are a lot of reasons why they should be maybe more compelling and work better. The reality is, if you're talking about the investment business you need to be both unique and conforming. If you don't conform to the basics of being able to be underwritten by an investor, it doesn't matter how unique you are, you'll never get through the process. So I I do believe that there are a variety of things that investors recognize in an effort to maintain and be able to generate alpha going forward. And they fall into the following categories. One, Investors recognize that given the backdrop of the maturing industry I referenced before, specialization is absolutely key. And specialization means focus. The statistics show, and, and there are a variety of reports you can go find on this specialists do better than generalists. Now, one might think that's a duh moment, right? But at the end of the day, the data supports that. In fact, the data also supports that specialists tend to underinvest leading into bubbles and supposed to overinvest where generalists do. So they're more disciplined. Not only do they perform better, but they're more disciplined even within mm-hmm. their sector of specialty. Second, beyond that, is the ability to take a company and pay a fair price because, again, there's no lack of competition for deals today. So how do you buy for a fair price and achieve outsized returns? That is, at the end of the day, the ability to add operational value to that business. Private equity has been driving for at least the last decade or more, but you know the last decade probably universally, towards a more operationally oriented approach. And quite honestly, firms are making progress of that. Some are figuring their way through it, if you will. And so that's become much more key. What are you going to do to that asset once you paid a fair price for it, not a low price, and add value to be able to create alpha? The third element that I think has is, is crept in more recently and will continue to as a secular trend is innovation and technology, which is ubiquitous. Technology used to be called an industry. My view is it's not an industry, it's everywhere, and it impacts every industry and everything that we do. And so from that perspective, something that combines both a unique and conforming approach, to those three elements should be very attractive it's honestly the three elements that when i first met with rob back in 2016 i found to be quite compelling about motive and honestly i think it's served its purpose and investors have uh, have seen it as quite attractive as well thanks
1: and you hit the nail on the head i think with unique and conforming it's an oxymoron i've been trying to get my head around particularly from a marketing and communication strategy perspective but this is absolutely an industry that doesn't like to look too creative or to be too different. But at the same time, you do need that edge. For us, the specialization, I think, has been critical. We've had many other private equity funds wanting to partner with us, to co-invest with us on stuff, purely because we are specialists in what we do. And we have some of the world's leading experts in a number of different disciplines. So that, that piece is absolutely true. The operational capability Certainly from our perspective, we evolved the operating partner principle into an industry partner principle where we have full time people who help us source deals, who help us supercharge companies from an operational perspective by lending their experience to them and then can go and run those businesses. And we've put a number of our industry partners into our portfolio firms And then technology, and you're absolutely right. One of the things I think other firms have found hard about the technology aspect is it does require upfront investment. And we took what at the time we felt was, a bit of a gamble in raising a chunk of working capital to invest in our technology capability. That's not just people, it's not just places, it's actually engineers and building our own IP to then work with the industry on to provide that intimacy and intelligence. It's easy to say, but it's not so hard to do. And I think it's taken us three, nearly four years to get to a place where we can blend those three pieces in a way that that I think is unique. That's really nicely put. Thanks again, Bob. Let's get to the entrepreneurial stuff. I know a lot of our listeners like to hear about the highs and lows of the entrepreneurial journey. I suspect having looked through your uh, digital CV that it's really just been a bit of a a hockey stick. But you were recently acquired by Hulahun Loki. You were operational just for about four years, I think, before that acquisition occurred. What were some of the biggest lessons you learned through that
2: journey? What drove the acquisition and, and why Hulu? Yeah, the journey started out, I guess, as I mentioned earlier, with our needing to compete against a field of established incumbents, some very large in the placement agency space. I guess I might have underestimated how low the bar really was in that industry. It's a bit of a joke. But at the end of the day, I think I've learned through, you know, kind of relative experience, how really blessed I've been to work with some very, very talented people throughout my career. And, um, you know, whether I was trying to or not, I feel like I've learned a lot from them just sitting in the room with them through the years. I can testify to the power of that. And look, I think at the end of the day, it's all about people. And uh, if you can surround yourself with the uh, brightest, not just the brightest, but those with passion and a desire to accomplish, all will be well. And so I think that lesson has continued to manifest itself as I've gone through this. That's a key element too, to all of it, honestly. Thank you. Again, super concise. And
1: people, something we talk about a huge amount here. And and actually talent is an area of the industry that I think still needs to undergo a bit more of an evolution within private equity, particularly as technology becomes a hugely differentiating factor. So people will as well, I think. And the, the battle for talent is, is going to rage on. We do always ask a question about talent and leadership because they're key topics for us. What are some of the best lessons you've learned in both of those spaces All that you've observed outside looking
2: in on your corporate and entrepreneurial journeys? this is going to sound like a bit of a a statement that is not lacking in hubris uh, but it's not meant to be that it's really meant to make a point i have felt like at times we could hire almost anyone we wanted to hire and it's not because i'm so good looking or smart or anything else it is because we were again combining a pretty unique value proposition that was simple to understand but we are also doing that in a cultural setting that the market is wanting. And I think it falls to a few different bits and pieces. There is no question there is huge competition for human capital in the marketplace today. But that human capital is wanting for a variety of things, including true leadership and vision and humility. Seeing people at the top that those younger individuals, in many cases, want to work with and want to follow through fire. That is, I think, lacking in many, many ways today, especially in finance where I think many individuals feel a bit like drones showing up and going through the paces. If you have those elements, number one, and then you combine that with buy-in, a view that you are actually going to those individuals to not tell them what to do, but to get them to be a part of the solution going forward, you then empower them to take that forward. And if you take those two pieces and combine it with a third element in keeping with the threes, economic incentives if you can package that together, I believe you can hire the best and the brightest. You can have them charge to go forward and accomplish a great vision and have them economically succeed through it. And it's pretty simple, but I think that's that's what it is. Thanks, Bob.
1: And again,
2: the threes are really nice. Lead from the front,
1: empower your employees and make sure the economics stack up for them. And I think You guys may have had an added advantage, as does the private equity industry, to be able to incentivize people in ways that perhaps other slightly more linear businesses can't with the investment piece. Are there examples that you've seen, other examples in non-alternative investment management industries where economics can be leveraged, I guess, to
2: empower and drive the right sort of performance? of course I mean you've seen this across many many different industries and private equity has benefited from it where you have companies that are orphaned assets generally speaking you don't have an orphan asset without an orphan management team and so uh, oftentimes those orphan management teams are not properly incentivized and again it it falls across many different if not all industry sets in unique and specific situations and so private equity has been able to actually go in and recognize that acquiring those orphan assets and, and turn those businesses around quite rapidly through the right governance and incentives. Okay, thank you. I've got a question down here that I'm going to ask
1: purely because I'm intrigued to know what you've put down in your notes. What do you wish you were told
2: before you started your career? I think what's more powerful probably is what I'm very glad I was told at the very beginning of my career. And as I mentioned, you know, I probably didn't come from the right cities. I probably didn't go to the right schools. And in fact, at one point I was told in the early 90s that I would uh, unlikely be able to get the kind of job I wanted, which was one of the most empowering things I've ever been told. And so I set out to prove people wrong and uh, spent really the first part of the 90s simply trying to get that foot in the door and get that first job. I felt like uh, I was harassing people at some point, but I figured out all the Wall Street firms that I was hoping to get a job with, I found the right people and the right entry point. And I did basic blocking and tackling, which was to get to know who their assistants were, get to somehow get a way onto their agenda and schedule. And uh, ultimately, one day I showed up, you know, making up that I was in just happened to be in town that day. The guy looked across the desk at me and said, you're the most persistent person I've ever met. And life is all about persistence. You've got a job. And uh, wow. I think that's, that's the point. Persistence is really the key to everything.
1: I had a not dissimilar moment when I left banking and uh, your analogy earlier of drones turning up to work was exactly how I felt. And it was only persistence that fixed that. So a very, very valuable lesson that, that resonates with me. We have some lighter questions we end on. Sometimes we call them fun. I don't, I don't know how fun they are. We'll, we'll judge that by your answer. You're an incredibly busy individual. You know, we've we've been trying to book this in for a while and very fortunately for us, you said you were busy working on more important things like our, I, like our I, fundraising. I, I don't think there could be more important. Uh, what are some of the daily habits that you've adopted to optimize your time?
2: So look, I think at the end of the day, being able to have the energy to keep moving forward through a busy schedule is important. So whether this is a strategy or not, but it's just uh, something that keeps it moving is actually trying to dedicate time to exercise, which is key. And more importantly, anything else, remaining optimistic. If you lose optimism you will lose all energy for, for everything, that would be my view. And so uh, exercise and optimism, I think, are the, uh, the two points I would make on this.
1: I feel like if I asked Rob the same question, he'd give the
2: same answer, exercise and optimism. Well, his exercise has been more effective for him than it has for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we talked earlier about David Rubenstein at the start. The guy's a legend. Like I said, we've had the great fortune and privilege of, of spending a bit of time with him. Well,
2: he's become an interviewer like you now. So, uh. You've just given <laughs> me an idea. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, who have been some of your other role models and mentors through your career? Look, as I mentioned earlier, I've been blessed to work with some very talented people. And I think in every place where you go, if you can't identify someone as a role model and a mentor, you're in the wrong place to begin with. So at Merrill Lynch... Kevin Albert, a guy who founded and ran the private equity capital raising business there and who remains in the industry today. He was definitely a role model and a mentor to me. He recognized I knew nothing about the industry. And instead of throwing me out into the middle of the pool, actually advised that I, I spend some time really learning the business from the bottom up. And that's provided me with an enormous foundation to move forward. I would say at uh, Advent, uh, the guy that that really hired me and took me on and who was really running that business when I joined, called Steve Tadler, was, again, another great uh, role model, of both a great investor and an amazing human being with the ability to coach and advise without people feeling like they were being coached and advised. A very unique skill. At the end of the day, though, as you referenced it would be hard for anyone to uh, stack up against David. And having spent 11 years with him, you know, the 10,000 hours, you know, if you can do something for 10,000 hours, you get pretty good at it. If you can sit for more than 10,000 hours watching the best at it, it does tend to rub off, I think. And that has been an an incredible journey. He's both a great entrepreneur and visionary and and a a wonderful human being. So as I said, I've been very fortunate. Amazing, thank you. It's a perfect way to end. There's a
1: ton of stuff in there that, that our listeners are gonna love. And you've done a brilliant job of demystifying some of the industry. And private equity has been clandestine for many years as it evolves and undergoes a significant change, you know, changing its sort of engine, mid flight. I think the spotlight's going to be shone more and more on it. And we would love to have you again in the future as things continue to unfold. Happy to do it. Thanks very much. Bob, thank you. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam, see you next time.
0: to update amend or clarify the information in the podcast whether as a result of new information future events or otherwise Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry, the economy, motive partners, or motive partners' investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.